I want to begin by sounding an alarm like you haven't heard enough of these in 2020. Um, and then I want to talk about what we can do in response to that, because I think we are each in a position where we can do something to help, and collectively we can do something really significant that can help. The alarm that I want to sound is that uh, the great crisis confronting our uh, country right now is not just the threat of a virus, but the loss of relationships. All the while we've been fighting a virus, I'm not sure we've paid full attention to what's been happening in the relationships between us. Sometimes it's because of the way we've responded to the virus by social distancing and quarantining and isolation and all of that is good insofar as it's protected our health, but it may be causing little cracks in relationships to become wider. In relationships, simply are in any society the most valuable and the most value-creating resource that society has. Study after study after study bears this out. 20 years ago, Robert Putnam started to be, uh, study little towns, villages, communities that were thriving, comparing those with those that were perpetually in trouble. And he noticed that the difference between them was not in the things we often point to. Thriving communities, he said, were thriving not because of geography, not because of politics, not because of systems, not because of leadership, not because of programs, not even because of tax base. They were thriving because of what he called social capital. It's the collective way that people in that community relate to one another. He noticed four characteristics. One he called the strength of networks. That is the way that individuals and groups relate to one another in that society. The second he called norms of reciprocity. People will always be mistreated, unfortunately, and when they do, what is the normal way that they respond to the way they're treated? One he called mutual assistance. That is, when people see other people are in need and they're lacking something, how quickly do they jump to provide what that person needs? And the fourth he called trustworthiness between leaders and the followers. Simply put, he said, a community's well-being has to do with the quality of the relationships between the people. Never in our history have we had the technology, the resources, the travel, to make more and better relationships. Never have we had fewer. Never have they seemed more shallow. Instead of pulling us together, technology has actually isolated us. It's reduced us to the sum of our convictions which we put in front of others. Technology does not tell people who we are. It tells them who we hope 
they think we are as we present ourselves. It hides us even as it tethers us. Resources have made us self-contained, self-dependent. Now we don't need each other as much because we have more ourselves and walls of isolation go up. And travel has made us less rooted in the communities that we used to belong to. So we are struggling today in part because of broken relationships. Ask yourself all that has happened in the last nine months in our country. Would the situation not have been much better if there was social capital? But if you look around our culture, in every field you see littered with broken relationships. In homes, the relational dysfunction only increases the disparity of income between the haves and the have-nots. In businesses, the drive to produce results, to compete has turned leaders away from the people who work for them towards stakeholders. And as a result, 80% of the people in the workforce today say that there is no one in their workplace who they think is looking out for their own interests. As a result, almost 80% of the people in the workforce today are either passively disengaged or actively disengaged. In the political arena, people have moved toward parties instead of toward individuals. Loyalty now is to ideas and to programs more than to the person across the aisle. Therefore, the disintegration of rules for the basic civility have, dis have fallen over our political system. The wonder is not that people stormed the streets in July and stormed the Capitol last week. The wonder is that it's taken this long because the simmering has been there for years even in churches which were designed to heal the soul of a nation. The stage has sometimes become a grandstand for dominant personalities with loud and divisive voices throwing fuel onto the fire. Robert Hall writes, I'm a strong believer in democracy. I am a believer in helping those who are less fortunate. But our broken relationships have a death grip on the economic growth, political progress, spiritual renewal, and social development that democracy has been unable to break. The result is an unfolding caste system in which those with strong relationships are haves and those in broken relationships are have-nots. As we come to the end of, I hope will be the end of the pandemic. And we are all able to gather once again. 
I wonder if we'll want to. I mean, we've learned how to quarantine with people of our own choosing. Will we still want to be with people we didn't choose? <laughs> or will we just be done with that? Will we, will we want to heal our, the rifts in relationships? And will we even know how? Will the person that we are in person be as charming as the one online that people have gotten to know? So I want to spend the next few weeks talking about relationships, but I'm not interested so much in the individuals in those relationships. I'm interested in the interaction between them. In physics, we know that energy is not in the particles of the atom. It's in the space between the particles. That's where the energy is. And in relationships, the energy is not so much in the individual. So any attempt to change an individual in a relationship does not necessarily make for a better relationship. I learned this a few years ago when the principal of one of our local schools in her office said to me, Reverend, can you explain to me how it is that I have a school that is full of good Christian people but when they get together, it's a toxic work environment. It's like individually, we have IQs of 140. But when we get together, we have a collective IQ of about 30. What is there that isn't translating into the way we interact? So I want to think about ways that our families and communities can start to interact like God. What I learned when reading the Old and New Testament is that God's solution to any problem, a universal problem, is always a particular person, always. doesn't matter whether it's Noah or Abraham or Moses. It might be Elijah, it might be the servant of the Lord and Isaiah, or it might be Jesus. But it's always a person, and more than that, it's a community that this person is part of. These communities that God is forming in the very places that need to be transformed are sometimes called households or houses. The Bet Ab in the Old Testament, the house of the Father. God is trying to put together household, little communities gathered around the person that God has anointed. And he places those communities, those households inside of broken ones as a way to transform them. This is how I read what's happening in Genesis chapter 12. God's call to Abraham is not simply to a man. What Genesis says is you and your household leave the land you were from and go to a land I will show you because through you, with you, 
I will bless all the families or households of the earth. This is how I read what's happening in Luke chapter 2. This story where Jesus gets lost in the temple. It's a great story. Let me try to just replay it quickly, though you know it. It's the only one we have of Jesus' childhood. We have no others, at least not the ones that are in the Bible. Uh, in this story, Jesus' mom and dad are taking him to the temple because it's time for the Passover. The temple, of course, is in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, at the time of the Passover, is crowded with thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people. Think of the Super Bowl week in Indy. People just sort of converge on the city, and the city's not large enough to hold that big of a population. Now, the center of attention uh, or the stadium, if you will, uh, in the Passover is the temple. And the temple is not just a church like this. The temple is like a campus. The plaza of the temple, this big, wide open space inside the walls, is 172,000 square yards. It's the size of 29 football fields. So when you come from afar with your family and you go into a city that is overcrowded, into a plaza that's 29 football fields, you can understand how you might lose the 12-year-old. Well, they traveled in caravans in those days, and Nazareth was 90 miles away because this long stretch of wilderness called the Transjordan is where all the bandits were. They jumped people that were traveling alone, so they traveled in caravans. Aunts, uncles, extended families, sometimes even friends, so that they were always safe. So you can understand how, when they were returning from the temple, it might take them a while to notice Jesus was not in their midst. And you can notice, or guess, the panic when that first occurred to them. Where is Jesus? And then from there, the blame. I thought you had him. Oh, jeez. You said you were, oh, no. And from there, they're just frantic. Now, if they were like our household, Joseph, if he was like me, he just went, ah, you know, they'll show up. <laughs> He'll figure it out. He knows the way, we just came. And if Mary was like Lori, hmm, there is worst case scenario just all over the place. Oh no, so they frantically turn around and start running back to Jerusalem to find Jesus. Now remember the city has hundreds of thousands of people. So they're running up to every friend and relative saying, have you seen this little 12 year old boy? This Finally it occurs to them, maybe he will be in the last place we saw him, in the temple. But the temple's 29 football fields. So they go into this thing and they're looking around and finally they spot him. He's oversitting with the teachers, the professors of religion. He's 12, holding court. And they're amazed at his teaching. 
I don't think he knew more than the professors of religion. I think they had all kinds of details he did not have. But when you know the heart of a thing, you can ask questions nobody else can ask. Sometimes the details obscure those questions. And I think they were stunned at his capacity to get right to the bone of religion like that. When Mary and Joseph see this, they're astonished. That's the word, shocked. And they go over to Jesus and Mary, you can tell she's been frantic. She says, why have you done this to us? There's probably a nicer way to put that. I mean, you could say, are you all right? Where have you been? But the way she phrases it, it sounds like she's offended. Why have you put us through this? Why did you do this? You're supposed to be with the family and now you're back in the temple. And Jesus is shocked at this display. And he says, you, you didn't know that I had to be in my father's house? Your father and I have been frantically looking for you. Yeah, and I had to be in my father's house. And they did not understand what he meant. Verse 50. The confusion, I think, was over who his father was. Your father and I have been looking all over for you. Right, and I have been in my father's house. Turns out, this confusion over whose Jesus' father is will follow him the rest of his ministry. When he's teaching and performing miracles, they will come to him and say, are you not the carpenter's son? Is your mother not Mary? Are your brothers and sisters not among us? In John, they will say, how can you be the carpenter's son and say that you came from heaven? It's like they can't understand where he came from. They don't know who his father is. There's a difference. His entire ministry over what family he belongs to. And so I've imagined myself following Jesus with his parents back to Nazareth. I'll bet that was a fun conversation. Tell me again why you had to stay in the temple. Well, I had to be in my father's house. You mean you had to be in the temple? My father's house. <laughs> no, son, your father's house in Nazareth. God's house is in the temple. My father's house is the temple. Son, who, who do you think your father is? Well, well, well it's Yahweh. 
Son, you can't say that. You can't even use the word. That's a sacred, you can't. Joseph is your father. No, it's Yahweh. Son, if Yahweh is your father, then that would make you equal to God. This is what got him killed. Jesus was not killed because he was pretending to be Jesus. He was killed because he was pretending to be God. He was saying things about God that you could not say. Jesus was not just saying, I am like God. He was saying, God is like me. And that got him killed. So I imagine this conversation on the way back when this suddenly dawns on Mary who he thinks he is. Wait a second. You mean there's two of you? And he goes, I know if you're easy. Wait a second. All of that is not loaded in this passage. That is not in the story. It is not. But this much is. Six times in the Old Testament is Yahweh referred to as Father, always in the generic, once removed sense. Is not God the father of us all? God is our father, said Isaiah and Jeremiah. As a father has compassion on his children, so does God have compassion on us. Always in the once removed, all of us together sense, here is a boy that is calling God his daddy. He was lighting a fuse that would burn the entire length of the Gospels, revolutionizing what we think about families. Jesus comes walking into our vision, this American idea of a nuclear family, and he says, your father is not just the one that is married to your mama. Your father is in heaven and your siblings are not your brothers and sisters born to the same mother. They are your brothers and sisters born again to the same father. Who is my family? Why? It's those who do the will of my Father in heaven. And Americans always dumb this down as if to say, well, what Jesus meant was God must always be first and then your family is second. No, that's, look, if that's what he was saying, he would have said it. What he said was, there is an alternative family that God is putting together. 
around the personality of Jesus Christ. He is forming a new household, which includes the people of your immediate family, but is much larger than that. And the reason that we treat each other well, the reason that we interact the way we do is not because it's nice. We forgive our enemies, we keep our vows, we turn our cheek, and we give to those who cannot pay us back, not because it's nice, but because Jesus said, by doing this, you will become sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. Matthew 5, 45. It's a family right. It has to do with the family God is putting together. So it doesn't matter what kind of family you came from. The goal of Jesus is not to make everyone the nuclear family that Americans have loved for 50 years. It is to put together an alternative family where people live and interact in the way that the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit interact. So this is how I was reading the Gospels this year. They changed the way I read them. My challenge to you this morning is that you would read the Gospels differently. If you pick up the Gospels and read them as the story of Jesus Christ, you're missing half, maybe two-thirds of the story. Because what Jesus said in John 5.19 was, the Son does nothing on his own. He does only what he sees the Father doing, so that whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So whenever you read a story and Jesus is acting, the Father is already there, or he wouldn't have even showed up. So when you read the stories now, you're asking, what are the relationship, the interactions between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit when things happen in this text? And here's why I care. Because I think our relationships would get better if we acted like that. And I don't think that is so rare and out there that none of us can do it. I think the Father fully intends for his family to interact the way he does. I really do. So as far off as that may seem for some of you, oh my goodness, you haven't seen my bear a mess. As far off, will you commit maybe the next few weeks to just pick up the gospels, anyone you want, and read one chapter a week. Slow, stop whenever you get stuck. Write down questions, observations, send them in if you want, call if you want, and work through those things. And what will happen is you'll start noticing that when Jesus interacts with people in fundamentally different ways, he is always doing what the Father is doing. 
You'll be surprised how often the Spirit and the Father show up in one of the scenes in his life. And you'll pay attention to those interactions. You'll start noticing them and maybe try to apply some of them into your families.